to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest today is Jim Crane, the Wallace S. Wilson Fellow for Energy Studies at Rice University's Baker Institute in Houston, Texas. His research looks at the geopolitical aspects of energy with a focus on the Middle East and the OPEC states. He spent 10 years as a journalist in Dubai and Iraq, and he's the author of several books, among them Energy Kingdoms, Oil and Political Survival in the Persian Gulf, published by Columbia University Press. And a personal favorite of mine, Dubai, the story of the world's fastest city. Jim, uh, welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. Oh, well, thanks for having me, Bill. It's great to be here. Now, look, oil is under pressure on several fronts. The economic fallout from COVID-19, a price that's hovering around $40 a barrel. Environmental concerns, renewables challenging for a share of the market. But is it fair to say it's far too early to write oil off just yet? Oh, yeah. I mean, oil is, at this point, oil is the only transportation fuel that we've got, right? So it, uh, you know, it has another role in, in petrochemicals that's, that's growing, and that doesn't even require it to be combusted, right? So, you know, for making plastics. So as long as we use plastics, we'll need oil. And for now, as long as we want to travel uh, and get around the, uh, the, the planet, we're going to need oil until until we get a viable replacement, either in the form of an electric vehicle or you know perhaps a fuel cell or something down the road. But but uh, right now it's really oil is the only game in town. It's got a virtual monopoly on on transportation, uh, and very few serious observers really feel that we're going to stop relying on oil anytime soon. So so we may see it. We're seeing demand for oil drop right now because of the coronavirus, because of the pandemic, because people aren't traveling so much. Uh, you know, and some of that might be permanent. So we might see a slowdown in, in oil demand growth or even, a, you know, we may even be at a plateau. Uh, who knows? In, in oil demand for the, for the globe at somewhere around 100 million barrels a day. But, you know, whether or not we're at a plateau, we're still going to be using lots and lots of oil uh, going forward until there is some sort of viable transportation alternative, uh, you know, for a fuel or until we, you know, unless we stop traveling. I mean, if, if, if this, you know, pandemic uh, becomes, uh, you know, permanent and, and, and people really uh, decide to travel less, well, uh, you know, we may see a little bit of a dent in demand from, from that, although, you know, goods and services still need to move around and that still needs oil. And yet these big oil companies are posting record losses, uh, they're hurting badly. They are. Um, you know, so, so different companies are, are hurting, you know, at different levels, right? So it really depends on their costs uh, of doing business. So if their break-even price, what price of oil they need to, uh, to, to turn a profit. And so for, for the biggest oil company and the biggest company, uh, you know, of any kind in the world, Saudi Aramco, uh, you know, Saudi Aramco is making a tidy profit with the oil at forty dollars a barrel. I mean, their their production costs are somewhere around eight dollars, uh, and that includes their capital investments. So Saudi Aramco is not making the profits that it's used to making. Uh, you know, huge you know uh, uh, you know returns of fifty to seventy percent uh, on their investments, but uh, they're still making money. Um, they're not making enough to to fund one hundred percent the uh, the Saudi government budget but they're still making money. 
uh, other oil companies that have higher costs of doing business are 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 definitely you know they well nobody has a you know no, you know nobody's can produce oil as cheaply as Saudi Aramco so everybody else is is not doing as well you know so at forty dollars a barrel some companies are okay some are on the borderline and some are losing money. Mm. Just a week ago, the United Arab Emirates brought their first nuclear reactor on stream. Now, the question I want to ask you is why? Because there are issues about security. Al-Al-Baraka, that's, that, that's the, um, the facility, uh, was hit by a Houthi missile in late 2017. There's issues of safety. The South Korean model lacks the safety measures that are now standard in, in Europe. There are cost issues. Nuclear is much more expensive than the renewables like wind or solar. Plus, they already have an abundance of hydrocarbons. So, bad move by the Emiratis? Well, I don't see it as a bad move. I mean, I see it as an interesting move, uh, you know, with pros and cons. Abu Dhabi, the Abu Dhabi uh, government has uh, decided to pursue nuclear for a number of reasons. Uh, and there's some pretty, pretty, some of them are pretty solid. Starting with, you know, this is a, you know, nuclear power plants that plant could be expected to run maybe almost until the end of the century, right? So they could last for 50, 60, 70, maybe even 80 years producing power. And one of the things that, that uh, oil-producing, oil-dependent economies are always looking to do is transfer today's wealth to future generations. Uh, and one of the ways you do that is by building these big, long-lived uh, infrastructure projects that will help future generations that may not be able to benefit from oil in the same way that, that today's generations uh, do. So they, they, you know, the Abu Dhabi government bought, uh, uh, you know, planned and, and, and funded that project when oil was really, you know, oil prices were really high, so above $100 a barrel, and they were just, you know, they had more revenues than they knew what to do with, uh, and sort of trying to pay that forward to future generations is not a bad strategy in, in developing uh, a domestic infrastructure. So Abu Dhabi uh, and the UAE in general, they're producing about 98% of their electricity by burning natural gas. Uh, but they also have export uh, uh, capacity for natural gas. They have an LNG uh, export terminal in Abu Dhabi. And um, they could be exporting that natural gas for a profit as LNG. But uh, because their demand for electricity is so high, actually the UAE has become a net importer. Uh, since 2008 of natural gas. So moving away from so much domestic consumption of their, of their natural gas will allow them to uh, potentially start exporting again and becoming a net exporter uh, of natural gas. And particularly for the, for the UAE, I mean, they're in this big dispute with uh, the neighboring country Qatar. They've got this, uh, this blockade and, you know, I mean, arguably instigated by the UAE. Um, but that is the country that they depend on most for their power generation feedstock. They import natural gas through the Dolphin Pipeline from Qatar. And uh, that is strategically problematic, I think, for, uh, for the uh, ruling elites in, in Abu Dhabi. I think they are wary of ha depending so heavily on this, this country with which they are at odds uh, so for, their, for their power. I mean, if... Uh, you know, if the Qataris were to, to stop exporting natural gas, I mean, the UAE would be in a world of trouble, especially, especially if they did it in the summer when uh, power demand is at its peak. So for, a lot, you know, for, for various reasons, they, uh, you know, nuclear makes sense. Uh, 
Now, on a cost-competitiveness basis, it does not. You know, nuclear power is expensive, even though this reactor, from what I understand, uh, is, is one of the lower-cost ones uh, around the world. It's still probably about three times as expensive, uh, the power generated by it, about, about, about triple the price, triple the cost of, uh, of that generated by some of the new solar plants that are popping up in the UAE. So these big solar power plants, PV solar in Abu Dhabi and Dubai, uh, that are producing power for around two cents per kilowatt hour. I mean, the, I think the, the, the Baraka plant, the nuclear plant, is somewhere about seven or eight cents uh, per, per kilowatt hour. You know, the solar is intermittent. It only works when the sun is shining. And if you build storage or backup, you know, natural gas backup, uh, you know, it's not quite as cheap as two cents. But um, uh, e- either way, it's, it's still going to be cheaper. So it's not cost competitive. It, you know there, there there are those issues, and there's one one more thing I guess I might add uh, a bill from a sort of a political geopolitical standpoint is that ruling elites in the Gulf are worried about the, you know the U.S. military commitment to protecting them, uh, and that's been based around their importance and prominence in oil markets. You know, to, so you know the global economy relies on this smooth flow of oil, and and a lot of that comes from the Persian Gulf region. And, you know, with the U.S. becoming such a, a major oil producer and sort of turning inward and, you know, various, uh, various trends in the U.S. Uh, have the Gulf elites worried that the U.S. may not enforce the Carter Doctrine and, and protect them from, from, from external threats. So having a nuclear power plant, it, it, you know, creates this danger of, uh, of proliferation uh, if there's a regime change in the UAE or some kind of uprising or revolution. It gives the UAE a bit more strategic value uh, and would probably um, change the calculation, maybe enhance the calculation of the likelihood that the U.S. would respond uh, in the event of an emergency or an attempted uh, you know, regime overthrow uh, in the UAE. It gives it a bit more strategic importance in, in Washington's eyes. Now, now, you've mentioned renewables, and that's something I want to ask you about, the extent to which the big national oil companies like Aramco and Adnoc the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, how much are they committed to renewables? And is it a path that makes sense for them to go down? And if it is, how far down are they actually going on renewables? Well, so, so the UAE and especially Abu Dhabi is making a, has been making a lot of noise about renewables for a long time. You know, at first, it really seemed to me like a, a greenwashing strategy. Like, you know, here's an old line oil producer that is, you know, a major exporter uh, and, you know, consumer subsidizer uh, of, of fossil fuels with a huge carbon footprint, one of the highest per capita carbon footprints uh, in the world. It was, I think it was actually number one uh, for a few years until it uh, adjusted its population uh, estimates. Uh, you know, so they were uh, going into renewables. They had this big announcement of Mazdar, the, uh, the zero carbon research, you know, they were calling it a city, uh, um, even though it's a tiny little small, you know, development with only, you know, a few dozen people living there. And, uh, you know, they they were, they actually got a, uh, the the United Nations to to establish the, um, the, its brand new renewable energy agency uh, in Abu Dhabi, right? So, so they were billing themselves as this forward-looking place that, uh, 
that was um, really moving quickly on, on renewables, the reality of it was that they, they did almost nothing uh, on renewables for a long time. They built one plant, it was a concentrating solar power plant, which is a, it's not the usual PV you know, photovoltaic technology that you see that, that, that converts sunlight directly into electricity. It's, it's, it's a different one that uh, uses mirrors and uh, heats up, uh, you know, uh, in this case, salt uh, to, 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 to generate heat to drive a turbine. This plant was producing electricity at something like 40 cents per kilowatt hour, incredibly, incredibly expensive. Uh, by far the most expensive uh, electricity uh, being generated in that region. I think they soured on that, that first project, how expensive it was and how little it, it did to help their, um, meet their demand. So they, they turned away from renewables for a while. Uh, and in the meantime, Dubai um, managed to, uh, you know, in its own sort of patented way, get some great deals on, uh, on PV solar. Uh, and they started building the solar parks, getting you know six cents, and then five cents, and four cents per kilowatt hour. The tariffs that they were getting were uh, were getting lower and lower. So eventually, Abu Dhabi got back into the game, uh, and more recently, they've been they've been uh, jump leaping ahead of Dubai, getting even lower prices. They're they're they've gotten one big solar park they're building now at something like one point six cents per kilowatt hour is the the tariff that they've uh, managed to get from their vendor. So. So now they are serious about it. They're still not generating a significant portion of their electricity through solar. It's still, I think probably right now, less than 2%, uh, but it's growing pretty quickly. And uh, you know, it's, it's, it's starting to become a, a, a material factor. So they'll have two zero carbon sources of power. One is, uh, is the nuclear plant. Uh, that's another benefit of, of nuclear that it does not emit CO2. Uh, and then a growing uh, host of, uh, of solar uh, power plants in Abu Dhabi and in Dubai, uh, and probably also in some of the other Emirates soon. Now look, climate change, how big a factor is it? How is it going to impact uh, on the area, on the region? How well is it being handled by the GCC states? You know, the, uh, the Emiratis say that uh, Beraka will deliver these huge uh, cuts in CO2 emissions, which is no doubt true. But, but how, how engaged are they with this issue of climate change? Well, so for, first of all, I mean, the, the Baraka power plant is not going to cut their CO2 emissions. It's just not going to, it's going to generate more electricity that, that, uh, uh, that, that, uh, that is not emitting. So it's basically going to hold the line on their CO2 emissions, right? It's not, the, uh, it, they're, they're not actually taking CO2 out of the atmosphere with the with that plant. They're just not adding more to it. I mean, they're not going to shut down any of their pre-existing generation. They're just using that plant to meet growing demand for, for power, right? So I think it's important to note that they, they won't be making any cuts uh, that I've heard. I haven't heard of any plans to shut down any existing uh, power generation plants. They may use some of their, their peaker plants that, that typically burn either natural gas or diesel. Um, they may use some of those in summertime. They may not need to use those so often. So there might be a small marginal benefit um, in, in reduction. But, but that's going to be outweighed really by this new coal-fired power plant that, that's being built in Dubai, the Hassian coal plant, a huge uh, plant, either the largest or the second largest coal-fired power plant in the entire Middle East, including Turkey, uh, which burns a lot of coal. So so Dubai is, uh, looks like it's about to set another one of its uh, superlative 
uh, you know, milestones, uh, one that it doesn't like to talk about very much, uh, and that's coal-fired power. Your other question about the how well the uh, or how you know how seriously the Middle East or the you know Persian Gulf countries, the oil-producing countries, are, are taking climate change, is a little different. For now, they seem to be looking at climate action uh, as a threat to their economies, right? So these are all economies that get something like 40% on average of their GDP from, from oil exports or gas exports in, the, in the Qatar's case. Uh, and so they view climate action as a, as, as a major threat. But climate change is also sort of a lose-lose for them because if, you know, if, if there's no action on climate uh, and uh, you know, fossil fuels continue to be burned at current rates, uh, you know, these countries are on the front lines of climate damage. Um, they are already extremely hot and humid uh, parts of the world that are only getting hotter. Uh, and pretty soon, if things if the, you know, things keep going in the same way, we still keep keep uh, increasing the accumulations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Some of these places are going to be too hot for humans to survive physically. So if you have a power cut during a heat wave in the summer, uh, people will die. Uh, they, you, you know, the human body cannot withstand uh, the type of heat that's uh, that's being forecast uh, for later in this century at current rates of emissions accumulations. So. So they've got, you know, they, they're in a tight spot, really. It's, uh, it's, it's kind of a lose-lose. You know, they get, they, they get damaged economically if climate action exceeds, uh, and they uh, become, you know, increasingly unviable places to live if, if, if uh, climate action fails. Hmm. Well, that is interesting. It pushed me pull you because uh, Dubai building, what, the second largest coal-burning factory in the region or at the same time as, you know, pushing for renewables. But but does that point to uh, the, a, a kind of a lack of coherence, really, in, in the MENA region about issues like climate change, about energy policy? Yeah, I'd say that's a pretty good way of describing it, is a lack of coherence, especially in the UAE. I mean, you've got, you know, if you look at it as a single entity, it doesn't make sense building renewables, coal, and nuclear power all at the same time. But, you know, the UAE, of course, is a federation of seven emirates, uh, and, you know, I think Abu Dhabi is is uh, justifiably frustrated, you know, not happy with uh, with Dubai building its uh, this coal-fired power plant. But um, you know, Dubai I think saw it as a good deal at the time. They're, they're, you know, it's a Chinese-funded uh, and uh, engineered and, and and built plant that you know they again they got a, a very low tariff um, on that plant, not as low as the uh, as the renewable uh, tariffs they're getting, but uh, you know it was a pretty good deal and they. I think they went for it. Had that come up today, you know, knowing what we know now, uh, they probably wouldn't have done it. But uh, it certainly looks like a you know an incoherent uh, energy policy nationally uh, around the Gulf. You know, I mean, it's so state-run energy policy and electricity policy around the Gulf, and and you have to remember these countries also generate um, desalinated water with many of these same plants. So they typically try to run them on natural gas. It seems like, you know, they're, they're such solar-rich uh, uh, countries. They've got so much empty land that solar is starting to look like a, um, a smarter and smarter solution for these guys, you know, if only to, to free up additional uh, oil and gas for exports. Saudi Arabia and Kuwait burn crude oil and oil products to generate electricity, which is pretty rare uh, in the world these days, uh, and it's something that, that they both really love to stop doing, 
And so going into renewables will help them do that. Well, they can find more gas or, you know, if they don't find gas, they can, they can build giant uh, solar farms. They've got plenty of spare land and plenty of sun. So, so I think renewables does make a lot of sense uh, for that part of the world, really, uh, you know, on an economic basis and on an environmental basis. So they, they seem to be moving in that direction. Jim, I want to move you 20 years down the road to 2040 and ask you what a viable energy strategy for the Gulf and the wider MENA region, one that takes into account the environment and the economy, what does that look like? What's, what's your best case scenario? Well, best case, I mean, I, you know, I would think that you know, the, the oil producing countries in the Gulf could start doing some of the things that actually you know, some of them are doing, uh, diversifying their economies beyond fossil fuels, you know, moving as quickly as possible in that direction. We're seeing that happen. And as they do that, they won't be under quite as much pressure to be so obstructive in, in international climate negotiations. And we might see them you know, rather than caucusing with, you know, some of the folks that want to, uh, you know, retain fossil fuels and doing all they can to, to, to block climate action, maybe to move in the other direction, caucus with uh, some of the countries that are, that are pushing for action, more urgent action, because, you know, this is a part of the world, it's a wealthy part of the world, and it is under grave threat from, from climate change. So they're, if they, if they want to keep uh, their people you know, living in the, uh, you know, in the same geographic region, they desperately need uh, climate action to succeed. But I think they've, you know, right now they've got a, um, they've got a direct uh, economic uh, incentive to, to, to do the wrong thing. Uh, they've got a conflict of interest. And, and to the extent that they can reduce that conflict of interest by, through economic diversification, um, I think that, that'll make us all better off, you know, them in the, uh, in the Gulf and the, and the rest of us everywhere else. So what a, a mix of renewables gradually weaning themselves off the uh, what's called the addiction to oil is is that what you see it? Well, the economic addiction to oil, I suppose. I mean, or at least to oil combustion. I mean, so Saudi Aramco has been in, investing heavily in petrochemicals. So this is a non-combustion use for for oil and for gas, actually. Now, what you make with it is plastics, and you know, plastics are also a um, kind of an unpopular item these days. But the plastics problem is mainly a pollution problem, and I think it's a lot more easily solvable than climate change <laughs> problem, right? So, so if, if there are ways to make plastics by consuming less, you know, burning less energy, there's still heat that, that's needed, and, and right now that's all provided by fossil fuels, but if, if, if uh, we can use non-fossil heat, you know, perhaps using hydrogen or something else, uh, the plastics industry is something that would keep the oil industry alive. So Saudi Aramco is moving pretty quickly there. Um, they're also doing, you know, with the understanding, you know, of what I said earlier, that, that, that you know, oil is the only transportation fuel we've got. They're starting to, um, you know, Saudi Aramco has the, the lowest carbon footprint uh, per barrel uh, for oil production out of any producer globally. So if you want to consume green oil, such that it is, um, Saudi oil is the greenest, right? Production of, of crude in Saudi Arabia emits the lowest amount of carbon uh, of any other crude anywhere on the planet. So 
So they, they're starting to, to, they've kind of taken notice of that advantage that they have, this sort of natural climate advantage because their oil just is produced so easily and they could actually offset, and they're talking about this, offsetting their scope one, two, and eventually scope three emissions. So scope one of their own emissions from when they produce it. Scope two is their, um, their uh, supply chain. And then scope three is their, 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 the, the folks that combust their oil, the final consumers, which you know might be us here in the U.S. or folks in China or Japan, wherever that oil is being combusted. So they could offset carbon, take carbon out of the air and, or out of smokestacks or refineries and put that back underground and start offsetting the carbon that's released by their oil. Uh, and that's where, where oil companies are starting to go. Um, they're, they're not doing it a lot yet, but uh, there's at least is talk uh, about offsetting these emissions. I think that is a, uh, a promising future direction, especially you know in some of these sectors like shipping and aviation, which are not going to be electrified uh, you know anytime soon, and you know where biofuels are just not not really as good as you don't have as much energy uh, density as as fossil fuels do. So. So offsetting emissions, uh, you know, these oil companies already have the pipelines and a lot of the technology to do it. We we may see more of that. Well, so in my 2040 scenario, we get to a, a good place or not? Well, what, are you an optimist or a pessimist in terms of where we might wind up with this whole issue of energy, how we use it? I mean, there's there's plenty of solutions there. So I'm an optimist on, on, the, on the technology side, but I guess I'm a pessimist on the... Uh, you know, humanity's ability to come to grips with this uh, collective action problem that really requires collective action, right? So, uh, you know, especially us here in the United States uh, and China, um, uh, you know, the two really big emitters uh, to, um, you know, countries are increasingly at loggerheads. And it really depends on, uh, you know, on on politics and on on policymaking. Um, And that is the wild card in all this. It's really hard to predict how policy will progress and unfold, you know, in the U.S., let alone globally. So, uh, so I guess I'm a pessimistic uh, pessimist on uh, on the policy side, but you know, an optimist on on the the technology that, that to to replace fossil fuels and the uh, you know the increasing cost competitive cost competitiveness of of that technology. Okay, well, Jim, hang on to that that optimism, and, and thank you very much. <laughs> okay, well, well, I guess we'll take a look at it in a few years and see how it's going. Thank you for having me, Bill. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was the Baker Institute's Jim Crane. He's the author of Energy Kingdoms, Oil and Political Survival in the Persian Gulf, published by Columbia University Press. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, You can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. And if you're a student, an academic, or retired, we are now offering a new rate that amounts to a 70% discount. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.